Good morning. Today's reading from the Word of God comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, through 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, through 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join Kit's crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. My name is Allie, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I am so glad to be worshiping with you this morning. Each week, as we prepare to dive into Scripture together, it's our custom to take a moment of silence to set aside any distractions from our morning and to ask God to speak to us through God's Word. So let's take a moment of quiet now.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to gather together. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to hear from you this morning, that you would be present with us, and that our reflection on your scripture would be glorifying to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you guys remember the last time an advertisement or a marketing campaign caught your attention? Lately, I've been seeing ads for Athletic Greens, this nutritional supplement, absolutely everywhere online. It seems like every single social media page or podcast is sponsored by them. And at first, it made sense. Like, they started with the fitness people pushing their product, and then it kind of creeped out towards the lifestyle people. For a nutrition supplement, that's them knowing their audience. And the other day, I had just been thinking, man, they really are everywhere. Like, what is their marketing budget? And I turned on my favorite theology podcast to listen to an interview about Bible translations, and boom, sponsored by Athletic Greens. That juxtaposition and the timing really got me good. The reality is that ads are all over the place, and in order to get our attention, brands have to come up with a strategy. There's the utilization of web algorithms to get ads in front of us. There's the athletic green, just put it everywhere kind of strategy. Or another super common way to advertise is through a celebrity endorsement. If someone famous, someone who's respected, someone who's seen as successful, smart, or stylish, if that person says that they use a product or that they like a product, the idea is that we then become more likely to buy said product. And with the rise of influencer marketing, a person doesn't even need to be big name famous anymore to advertise a product. They just need to have something about them that you're interested in their looks, charisma, style. It's a super common strategy to attract a person to a product. And a lot of times this is successful. Like when Michael Jordan endorsed Nike, right? And they created Air Jordans. This partnership was so successful that it revolutionized the sneaker industry. Nike hardly had any influence in the world of basketball in the early 80s. And now Jordans are collectibles and they earn both Michael Jordan and Nike hundreds of millions every single year. That is like the dream situation. But sometimes these relationships between celebrities and brands don't go as planned. Small gestures that would otherwise seem harmless can have enormous impacts on the brand's success. Like when the basketball player LeBron James had a contract with Samsung, and then he tweeted, my phone just erased everything in it and rebooted. One of the sickest feelings I've ever had in my life. Le LeBron deleted the tweet after 10 minutes, but the internet remembers forever. Oops. Or in 2020, when Coca-Cola was a major sponsor of a tournament, and soccer player Cristiano Ronaldo removed the Coke bottles from the podium of a press conference and told his audience to drink water instead, causing a five billion, that's with a B, billion dollar dip in Coca-Cola's market value. <laughs> On their own, expressing frustration at technology or moving a bottle of Coke off a podium are pretty harmless actions. 
But as celebrities are always being watched, they accidentally sent a message contrary to the one that they were supposed to send. Instead of endorsing Samsung, LeBron made it look like a bad buy. And instead of allowing Coke their spot in the light, Cristiano Ronaldo let them on that he was not drinking that stuff. And it had consequences. The people who may have been swayed to purchase from those brands would no longer be influenced. That's a loss in purchases and wasted advertising budgets. Now, I'm very grateful that if you or I move some bottles of Coke, we're not messing with the global economy. But just because we aren't celebrities doesn't mean that people aren't noticing what we do. Whether we like it or not, we have interactions all the time in which people notice what we endorse with what we say, with what we do, with what we wear. People notice if what we say does or does not align with what we do. People notice and make their own interpretations based on what they are able to see about us. And in today's passage, the Apostle Paul is advising the Corinthian church to be careful about what message other people are picking up from their actions. This morning, we are continuing our sermon series, Elephants in the Church, Hot Topics in the Corinthian Letters. And over the past few weeks, as we have journeyed through chapters 8 and chapters 9 of 1 Corinthians, we have been seeing this theme of the freedom that believers have to act in certain situations and how that relates to effectively sharing the gospel. This morning, we'll see that there are certain situations in which Paul asks the believers in Corinth to set aside their freedom to act in order to not create a barrier for others to understand and accept the gospel. So I encourage with you, you to turn with me to the passage that Amelia read for us this morning, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23. The Apostle Paul, in our, message to, in our passage today, is returning to this conversation about eating meat that is sacrificed to idols. See, in the city of Corinth at the time that Paul was writing, it was extremely common for meat to be sacrificed at the various temples before being, being brought to the marketplace to be sold. So if you wanted to pick up some beef so that you could have a nice hearty beef stew for dinner, the meat you picked up was almost guaranteed to have already been sacrificed to honor Apollo or Aphrodite or some other deity. That's just how things were. Now, if you were the average pagan in Corinth, that probably felt like a perk of eating meat. The more gods we honor, the better, right? But for the Christians in Corinth who are supposed to be rejecting polytheism, the worship of many gods, that creates a situation that feels pretty tricky. Can I eat food sacrificed to a false god if I believe in one true living god? It's a great question. If I eat the food that's sacrificed to idols now that I'm a Christian, what does that communicate about what I believe? How will people interpret that behavior? And what will they conclude about me because of it? So Paul gives some guidance. He starts by saying that the Christian should feel free to eat the meat bought in the marketplace. We already know that it was sacrificed. You don't even have to ask. Even though we're assuming that the meat is sacrificed, Christians should still feel free to eat the meat because after all, God is the creator of all. 
Paul quotes, quotes Psalm 24, the earth belongs to the Lord and everything in it. All good things, including tasty meat, come from the Lord. The meat already belongs to God, and sacrificing an animal in front of some lifeless statue doesn't change that. Of course, there are also modern-day conversations about whether it's ethical to eat meat for a lot of different reasons, and those are important conversations. But back in Corinth back then, the eating habits and the norms, that was very different, and that wasn't the conversation that people of that day were having, not in the same way, not with the same ethics or questions that we have. So for the sake of discussion this morning, we can set aside the modern-day questions and assume that back then, meat was a common staple of the ancient diet. And for them, the question wasn't, can we eat meat, but instead, what meat can we eat? And so here, Paul has said, the meat in the market has been sacrificed to a false god. That doesn't matter because we don't think that these gods are real. The meat has already belonged to our real creator god. So go ahead and eat it. Bon appetit. We can thank God for the meat he has provided, enjoy, and not worry that we are engaging in idolatry or polytheism. The same is true if you get invited over to your polytheistic neighbor's house for dinner. If they bring out a delicious-looking meat entree, ask no questions. Enjoy. Receive their hospitality. Eat, hang out, no problem. Unless unless they mention that the meat was sacrificed. Then, don't eat it. This might seem a little bit silly on the surface. Like, we already know that this meat came to the table by way of the temple. We all already know that this meat was sacrificed. So what does it matter if we say it out loud? Does it really change anything? And what is Paul getting at? What he's getting at is that the steady Christian who does not believe in false gods, it doesn't change anything for them. But for your neighbor, who does believe in other deities, it does change things. Because if they are bringing up the fact that the meat was sacrificed, they're not bringing it up just because. It's not a casual conversation point, like you might talk about the weather. They're bringing up the fact that the meat was sacrificed as a way to continue to honor the deity that the meat was sacrificed to. They are bringing up the sacrifice so that their dinner guests could be included in this religious honoring of a false god. If that happens, and then you eat the meat, what would they think? This is what Paul cares about. What will your non-Christian neighbor Think about you, the Christian, eating as part of a religious expression. What is the Christian unintentionally endorsing by eating the meat? Well, their neighbors might assume that our God, the one true God, is also okay with polytheism. That God is fine with us worshiping other gods too. They might assume that choosing to follow Jesus means that nothing about our life really has to change all that much. And if they perceive our actions as a Christian endorsement of polytheism, 
How will they then understand a gospel that centers around the truth that there is only one God? That there is only one God who can and will save us. This is the issue at hand for Paul. Abstaining from eating the meat has nothing to do with the action of eating being moral or immoral on the part of the believer. Abstaining from eating the meat sacrificed to idols has everything to do with the non-Christian's understanding of right and wrong. It has to do with the unbeliever's understanding of the gospel. It has to do with the unbeliever's possible salvation. Ultimately, for Paul, everything that we do should be done for the glory of God. And that means that we should choose our actions carefully so that we do not get in the way of another person coming to know God. So that we don't get in the way of another person receiving salvation. This doesn't just apply to our neighbors who don't believe in God, but anyone whose understanding of the gospel is not secure. In chapter 8, Paul calls these people weak, or people with a weak conscience. And that sounds really insulting, like he's calling them undisciplined or scrawny. But what he really means is that they have a weak grasp of the gospel. He means that they do not have a strong enough understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them to not be misled by actions like eating meat. Paul is asking the believers in Corinth to set aside the freedoms that they have so they don't accidentally mislead someone. So how does this passage inform how we live? The question of eating sacrificed meat is a very real question for Christians in other parts of the world where religions with animal sacrifices are more prevalent. But here in 21st century Massachusetts, it's not very common. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that for the vast majority of us, we're not concerned about eating food sacrificed to idols in front of an unbeliever. It's just not likely to come up. That doesn't mean never, though. Pastor Bryn did have to study this passage once to discern whether she could eat food that was sacrificed to an idol in Salem. So you should ask her about that during Soul Food. But if we aren't directly applying this to meat, we can or cannot eat. I think that first we need to acknowledge what this passage is not saying. It is not saying that we should stay away from unbelievers or remove ourselves from situations with unbelievers where we might be invited to do something that is or looks contrary to the gospel. Paul doesn't tell people to stop eating with their unbelieving neighbors. Paul doesn't say, don't go over for dinner anymore or even get up and leave dinner when they offer the meat that has been sacrificed. He simply says, don't take the bait. Don't eat the meat. You can still be there. Just don't go along with participating in the religious expression. Actually, it's important that we are there. If we remove ourselves from situations in which we might be able to build relationships or talk about the gospel with our neighbors, we will never have the chance to share the best news with them. These conversations and interactions that we have are important. But being in the mix for the sake of the gospel does mean that we've got some work to do. And that work starts with growing our self-awareness. 
we need to be able to take a step back and look at our behavior and imagine how somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus or someone who is new to the faith might interpret our actions. We need to practice looking at ourselves through the eyes of others. And that does take practice. Thankfully, that's something that we can help each other with. Part of the blessing of belonging to the body of Christ is that we all enter it from different experiences that shape our perspectives. So when we are unsure about how something might be interpreted by others, we can get the perspective of other believers who might have wisdom to share. And when we do find ourselves in situations where our behavior might be misinterpreted as an endorsement of something other than the gospel, it means changing something. It means choosing to act differently. Maybe, like in the Corinthian situation, it means denying ourselves something that we might otherwise have partaken in. Maybe it means denying ourselves the comfort of not speaking up. I imagine that to not eat meat at a dinner party also meant that you were explaining yourself. It probably meant saying something like, thank you so much for your hospitality, but I will not eat and participate in honoring a God other than the one true and living God. I gotta admit, like, that would be very hard for me. Years ago, when I worked as a barista, I had a coworker who was super into new agey spirituality. And every time we had a shift together, I would hear her talk about things like astrology and horoscopes or crystals and their healing energies. She would talk about the universe guiding, directing, and leading her as though creation itself was a god. She talked with such certainty, and she loved dishing out advice to anybody who would listen. And I, I had no idea what to do with that. I did, and I do not believe in anything that she was talking about. And yet I was afraid of saying anything because I didn't want to come across as being mean or needlessly rude. And so I went with the old standby of just smiling and nodding. Which now, I can see probably looked like, yeah, I'm on board with what you're saying. My silence was probably interpreted as an endorsement of her beliefs, instead of me representing the gospel with my actions. I wish that I had even had the wisdom to just bring up the situ situation with my coworker to some other tr trusted Christians who could help me navigate it, but I didn't. I just continued to smile and nod and give some standby retorts like, uh-huh, yeah. If I could go back in time, I would do things differently. I wouldn't be harsh or adversarial. I don't think we need to go out boldly proclaiming where we draw the line in most cases. I probably wouldn't even be very direct. But I might ask some questions to show that I'm not on the same page as her and open up a dialogue. Something like, hey, I've noticed that you look for guidance from the universe in a similar way to how I would look for guidance from God. Do you consider the universe to be a being? 
I really don't think it would have taken much. My coworker was obviously ready to talk about what she believed. And starting with a little curiosity and a willingness to have a conversation about our similarities and our differences would have been a better way to approach it than just silence. Even if I had fumbled the conversation a bit, as we're all prone to do sometimes, at least then she would have received from me an endorsement of the gospel instead of a silent endorsement of her beliefs. If you still feel weary about taking the step to talk about faith with an unbeliever, or if you're not so sure that taking the effort that Paul is asking of us to give to examining our behavior, if you're not sure that that's worth it, let me remind you that Jesus and the gospel are worth it. Jesus and the gospel are worth endorsing with our whole lives. Because our God, the only living, real God, creator of the world and all that is in it, wants to have a relationship with you. Our God loves and cares for you so much that when sin and brokenness got in the way of having an intimate, personal relationship with us, he came to live among us, to teach us, and ultimately to die for our sake. Jesus died for our sin, and Jesus died for our shame. And because of what Jesus has done in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, we get to live in loving relationship with God, counted as God's own children forever. We get to live with a God who is for our flourishing forever. Eternal life with a God who loves us. That is amazing. That is the best news. And we, when we look around at our neighbors, when we look at the people that we encounter in our lives, we should want that for them too. Because guess what? God's love isn't limited. The good news is not a finite resource. Jesus did not die for some. Jesus died for all of us. And when we choose to believe in Jesus, when we choose to follow Jesus, we choose to try to live and love like him. Which means loving our neighbors enough to care that they understand the gospel and to do what is in our power to not get in the way of their understanding and their acceptance of it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did send your son for our sake and for our neighbors. God, we pray that as we reflect on your word, that you would bring to mind behavior or conversations or people that we need to be different around so that we can properly endorse your gospel to them instead of something that leads them astray. God, give us the wisdom and the guidance to represent you and your gospel well. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.